Welcome to the Forum Storytellers Podcast. This is Forum President and CEO Brian Whalen. Forum Storytellers shares and preserves stories about life and work in the field of education abroad. I hope that you enjoy the stories featured in this podcast. Okay, I'm Alexis Philaktopoulos, and we are in Athens, uh, October 8, 2016. And I have with me Mike Wolf, the Mike Wolf. Uh, and I'm awed by the task of having to interview this Goliath of study abroad. Hello, Mike. Um, I'm awed by that description <laughs> and confused. You, Mike, you, you have a huge reputation in the, in the field. You are also an erudite man. You always manage to bring the literary part of you in, uh, in whatever you say and uh, present. I know all your presentations have some sort of literary reference. So I want to ask this, uh, com- this conversation by asking you, what are you? Are you, are you a, a man of literature or a man of study abroad? That's a very good question. Um, I, I go back to literature a lot because it's the thing I really know best, I think. So I relate much of my life and, and my professional life. I look for literary parallels because I think they have a lot to tell us. But in terms of my professional commitment now, I do a little bit of writing and dabbling into, in literature fields, but mostly I'm, I'm committed to, to study abroad in particular and international education in general. You know. Mm-hmm. I know you have a, a long career in, in academia, and uh, I, I want to drag you into uh, a flashback. I want to get you to recount, to start to tell us, to tell us something about your life from the very beginning, from, from what you first remember. My background was I was born in 1947, and I lived in the Jewish East End, which was a very, very small world. And it, but it was a very particular kind of world in that it was post-Holocaust, and nobody talked at all about the Holocaust, but I think it created an environment of timidity. You know, there was, a, there's an air, there was an air of anxiety that when you were young, you really didn't know why, but you, you were aware that your parents and grandparents in particular were timid. And, you know, I had an, an aunt who finally joined us when I was seven or eight who had been in the camps, and she was the only one who had, that I knew personally. But so it touched our lives. It meant, in a way, your horizons perhaps were a little narrow and your view of the world was a little narrow because you were convinced, uh, particularly when you were very young, uh, that, that the world was a hostile place. And, you, you know, the idea of a, you can lose everything tomorrow, um, a refugee mind, although we weren't refugees by any means, I think that and somehow permeated who we were. And I grew up, I, was, I had to go to a Hebrew school. I went to a secular school during the day, a Hebrew school four nights a week and all day Sunday until I was old enough to get rid of that immediately. And that was as soon as possible. <laughs> it was then a small community. And education, though, education was thought to be important, but nobody knew how to articulate it. You know, and my father, rest his soul, was very um, engaged with the idea of education, but he didn't know what it was. He'd left school at 12, and later years he, he had, a, I remember a conversation he had with my academic mentor, Malcolm Bradbury at UEA, 
when I got my degree and uh, Malcolm told me many years after, he said he'd never answered my father's question to his satisfaction. Because my father said very respectfully, he said, Professor Bradbury, do tell me, what is it you do? <laughs> and Malcolm said, I never really was able to answer that. And they actually subsequently became friends, another story. I went to um, a local grammar school, which was a decent school. Um, mm -hmm. And by that point, the impact of some of the reforms, post-war educational reforms, were felt so that you could actually go to university on a full grant uh, and pay no fees. And that's what I did. You know, I was the first person in my family uh, to graduate. Um, my brother went to university for a year and, and left. It was a sort of bit of a mystery whether he was left or pushed out. But, but they, were dear, they were odd years. So I went in 1965 to the University of Lancaster, which was a new university. And um, I don't know how to put this delicately, but it was the mid-60s and, and I wasn't the greatest of students. When I think comparing what we were to the students today, we were so much worse. I mean, the, there were times when you couldn't even find your shoes, let alone put them on and go and do an internship, you know? So I, I wasn't the best of scholars. I, I graduated in politics and history, immediately went to Prague in May of 1968. And I had friends who said, wow, you know, you really engage with history. You're going to Prague. I had no idea what was going on in Prague. I was in love. I went for love and lust. You know, neither were entirely successful. So I came back to England, having entirely missed the event, the great events of Prague, because I was unconscious of them. Um, I got a teaching job. There were many jobs in those days. 69, I started, January 69. And I taught for three years in a lovely rural boys' school. And I, I taught literature to kids who really, they were mostly interested in poaching rabbits. But they were nice kids, and I had a nice time. But then I realised I need to go back to university. And so I applied to University of East Anglia to do an MA. It was taken up by the man I mentioned earlier, who became my mentor, who sort of died a few years back, called Malcolm Bradbury. He was a novelist and a, a wonderful academic. And it, he really drove me into this. You know, he drove me into taking study seriously, taking literature seriously, taking life seriously a bit more. And I finished there, and he was instrumental in getting me a scholarship to Hull, uh, where I started and almost finished my PhD. And then I went, towards the end of that, I went to Italy, where I suppose my really international education in a sense began. And I, it was a bizarre experience, because I was teaching in the University of Padua and the University of Venice and doing a couple of other things. And I enjoyed it very, very much. But I learned something that you learn in Athens, that there is actually no such thing as progress. And this came to me in an insight when I was teaching in the bow where Galileo had taught. And I was giving a particularly inept lecture on T.S. Eliot <laughs> to indifferent students. <laughs> and in the room where somebody had changed the world. Uh -huh. And you feel that, you know, you look at the Acropolis yeah. and you think, this is Socrates and Plato hang around here. And we're going to go and talk about health and safety? You know, where's the progress? There is no such thing. So that was really, that was really my academic interest. I, I was a dabbler. I, I wasn't, I don't know that I was a genuine scholar. I wrote a lot because I like writing. But the, the potential for cultural confusion as an Englishman teaching Italians 
American literature was pretty great. I mean, the areas of confusion that we all had <laughs> were yeah. uh, well, unavoidable. Let, let, let me, let me uh, I'll, I'll let you continue no, for, no, on no. this um, very interesting um, report here. But let me get you, take you back for a second. What, um, what did Malcolm Bradbury see in young Mike Wolf? You know, he, he took you on as, a, as, an, as, a, as an apprentice, as a, a disciple. Uh, he became your mentor, uh, obviously had some great influence on you. What do you think attracted him to you? I think, I mean, I'm not being funny here, actually. I think an air of desperation, because <laughs> I wasn't qualified to join this MA course at all. I mean, I had a lousy, poor degree in, in politics and history, but I'd read a lot. And I think he thought, I'll give him a chance. You know, and he may not do this. But I think he thought that I had... Uh, some level of determination and some level of intent. So, and I actually did very, very well, you know, so that, that, but that was a lot to do with him as well. But I, he might have said, because I didn't know what to do at that point. I didn't want to teach in a rural school the rest of my life. It wasn't a bad prospect, but it wasn't, it was a very parochial environment. I, I think he thought, thought that I, I had a capacity to think, even if I didn't know what yet to think about. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it does make sense, and he obviously was right. Tell me, the, the, these were the sixties, right? Um, the By this time, we're in the seventies. Yeah, but, yeah. Tell me, I mean, we, we're all we, we're kind of. Uh, I think we're the same age, more or less. Uh, we were all very much politically aware in those days. Very, very much on the on the left side of things. Uh, well, by European standards on the left side, in America you, 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 they call them liberals, I suppose. Uh, all that the demonstration uh, movement, uh, Vietnam War, I mean, that, I, know, I know for me, I mean, that deeply affected me in those days. Where, 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 where were you in relation to these, to these events? You know, I was very political, and I was very politically motivated and engaged, not necessarily in a very sensible way, but I had been since the age of 14. I, I was... I joined the Communist Party at the age of 15, much to the shock of my parents who thought this was like I was a Stalinist. Well, I kind of was, actually. Um, <laughs> but I, I'd become, particularly in the campaign for nuclear disarmament, was very strong there. And um, I, I don't know that I had a very sophisticated sense of politics. I still don't know that I have a sophisticated sense of politics. But all my instincts have been left. And as I've got older, I think they've become a little bit more left. And my son, who's one of my, one of my many critics, has said, you know what, Dad, your view of the world is a static Marxist perception of things. <laughs> we could have a very long discussion about that, I suppose, but it's going to drag us away from the, uh, the main purpose of this, uh, of this interview. But look, I, I had I stopped you abruptly when you were still in Italy, and um, you were um, you were looking around <laughs> for for the next step. Yeah, uh, you were in the uh, University of Padova, I believe. Yes. So, so what happened after that? Uh, well, after Italy, what happened was actually on a personal level, what happened was my father died, and I, I needed to get back fairly quickly because things were not. They were bad, you know, but there were, there were issues. So I came back around 79 and got a, a couple of part-time jobs, I, one of which I really, both of which I enjoyed. I was teaching 
American literature, what was then Middlesex Polytechnic, and also was uh, doing some research and writing for BBC Radio, mm -hmm. which was a very interesting thing to do. You know, and I, I wrote, I worked on a series of programmes, one series I devised, and... Uh, did the writing and the research, and they were the kind of radio documentaries that don't make much anymore. They were 30 minutes, quite thoughtful, with budgets, you know. And we, we did some interesting work. And I did that for quite a while. I was kind of quite happy with that. And that was the point towards the end of that when I got into international ed, because at Middlesex, mm -hmm. uh, the head of my department there of American Studies said he'd heard of an organisation that was looking for, to, to really begin, for the first time seriously, to begin work in London. They were looking for a director, and the main qualification was that you knew a little bit about a lot, but not much about anything in particular. <laughs> um, so he then said, I don't know still to this day how to interpret it. Well, I do, that's the problem. He said, you'd be perfect for it. So, you know, I think he saw me as a dilettante. So I wrote a CV and I sent it off mysteriously to New York to an organisation that I later learned, quite a bit later, because it was a while, was CIE. CIE? Uh, yeah. And uh, after one of the more bizarre series of sets of interviews, because I wasn't used to this, I'd get a, a, a phone call on Tuesday and say, can, can you be in New York Thursday? You know, I was used to getting the bus to the BBC, and so I was flying around all over the place. They sent me to Japan as part of this interview. And finally, I was interviewed by Jack Eagle, the president, and Senator William Fulbright. And um, he was the honorary chair of CIE, and for relatively senior appointments, he, he out of courtesy, they asked him to bless these appointments. Mm -hmm. So I met I subsequently met him on many occasions... Um, but Jack, who was then the president of the CIE, said, look, it's a formality. As long as you don't say much. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, look, you know, just go in and say, it's a pleasure to meet you, you know, Senator Fulber. Keep calling him Senator. He was well retired by then. And um, just listen to what he says and he'll love you. And that's exactly how it happened. I hardly said a word. <laughs> that's what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Told me his life story. I said, that's so interesting, Senator. And Jack said, oh, well, we, he's got to go now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I was appointed and uh, I started at CIE in uh, one room. The then European director, because I was working in exchanges, not study abroad, so this was the not-for-credit stuff, said, you know, you know what we believe in, you know what we want to do, try and get 10 people together and do it. And it was a wonderful time, it was just me. Um, mm -hmm. So I had a little time, and he said, we'll give you at least a year, and if you screw up, then you'll have to go. <laughs> how, how, how old were you by, at that time? By, more My or less. 30s. And it was the most interesting challenge I've ever had. You know, I, I got some, a Bunak student who was brilliant to help me out, and we started to build programmes. We built uh, a lot of programmes, uh, again, not credit, but um, teacher exchanges with Japan was a large thing we did. We sent some British students to do internships in America and uh, under the J-1 visa programs. So these weren't academic. They, were, they weren't for credit. They had, all had an academic element to it. And we grew it. And I had 10 very nice years there. I really enjoyed myself. CIE had been in international education for some time. Oh, yeah, 1948. It had never functioned in London properly, though. They'd never done anything in London. 
So mm. we moved our offices three times. We, we, had, we started off with one room in the British Council. Then I moved us bizarrely to a synagogue. This was pure accident because these were <laughs> offices we could afford, a liberal synagogue. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Soho to a really very, very nice, I don't know if you know Soho in London, but it was very close to a jazz club, which is one of my main motives in moving it there, Ronnie Scott's. So um, you, you were the, uh, the force behind CIE getting into London? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know. I mean, obviously with lots of other people, but I drove that. I was the director. I drove that agenda. It's strange, though, because UK nowadays is very, very popular. And I would have thought that the CIA would have already capitalized on that. Yeah, oddly enough, you know, they, they'd never done exchanges. And in fact, when Steve Truboff became president, he started to dismantle the European operations. He thought, for good or ill, he had a good reasoning as well. I mean, you could argue about it. But um, he actually thought that they, that, that uh, CIA should become predominantly an American organization served through an agent network. Mm-hmm. So he, that was a different vision from Jack Eagle, who wanted to build CIE Europe as the equivalent of CIE America, and even CIE Asia, and he wanted to you know, really globalize the organization. And then, and then, then what happened to you? You, you, you left CIE, yeah. time, I believe, right? I went to Syracuse University to, head, to be the director of the program in London and to help with European development. They also made me a Maxwell Fellow, a role that has no responsibilities and no duties and no meaning, but I was a senior fellow of the Maxwell School. Oh, I, I, I like that kind of role. Where, where, can, you get, where can you get one like that? Well, <laughs> it's unpaid, you know, I mean, as well. So I was, it was an extraordinary, interesting thing. Okay. I was two years at Syracuse, and I think, you know, I respected my colleagues as I still do now. I respect everybody's contribution. I didn't enjoy it. Much, and I think it's because it was the first time I'd had to deal with a rather strong university bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and I, I could never get the health and safety people or risk management to agree to anything. So I kind of did it anyway. But I'd been used to being at CIUA. If I wanted to do something, I did it. You know, I could improvise. I could decide on Wednesday we're doing this Friday, yes. which is probably not a good thing. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. But this was the other end of the spectrum. So after a couple of years, two and a half years, I had a phone call from the aforementioned president of CIA, Steve Truboff, who said, well, do you want to come back? Yeah. No, then I went back to CIA. It was a very interesting time to work with Bill Cressy and Steve as a, what did they call it now, a kind of regional director for Anglophone programs. Mm-hmm. So I had one of the more bizarre... Um, travel schedules because that ran from Ireland to New Zealand and my travel budgets were surreal. This is a huge portfolio because... Uh, yeah, it was. So you must have spent quite a bit of time traveling. Uh, oh yes, endlessly. That, I mean it was fun because again it was a development agenda. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was not agenda because I, I, they wanted a program in India which I, it took a long time but I was interested in doing that and I did that with some help of course everything you do with some help but I was responsible for developing the CIE Hyderabad program and for closing down half of their Australian programs because they'd just signed an agreement with IDP to represent all Australian universities and I thought this was crazy mm. and 
So we dismantled those, that and left it at five or six universities instead of 45, which we couldn't even talk mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there were at least 38 universities in Australia that still hate me because they know When you were doing all this, were you involved in the uh, logistical part? And the, uh, uh, the logistical part comes with uh, finance and financial affairs and so forth. Uh, the, the, your actual operation uh, of, of the... Less. Or were you in charge of the academic, uh, more thinking part of uh, our jobs? I think probably more of the strategic academic planning. Although in setting up programs, there was always, obviously, I worked on budgets. And I've um, always been mildly... Uh, I've not been interested in doing it, but I've been able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and we've had to... But on the operational side, I, I, I was less involved. I really didn't, even in those days, didn't have a huge amount of contact with students, which is, I regret, you know, I've not had that. But we hired some very, very good resident directors, and that was my job then, you know, to find the people who would be good with students. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would have been that good with students. I think I'd scare them. Every time I talk to them You now, would scare them, or yeah. you were scared of them? No, no, I think I, I just... I disturb them in some odd kind of way. <laughs> I always ask them if they're learning anything. And this question seems to be terrifying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a level of nervousness. And our staff in London don't like me talking to students. When I knew you, you were no longer, when I That's met right. you first, I suppose, well, you were no longer at CIE. Uh, I had you may have been, left. I forget now, but I remember you as, uh, as FIE. Yeah. I, I just left. president. That's right, and became president at FIE, which I enjoyed a lot. But your question, that's when, of course, as the president, I was directly responsible to the board and the budgets and uh, mm-hmm. the whole heavy pall that you know very, very well of administrative and uh, personnel issues and the kind of endless stress of all that. But I enjoyed it, you know, and I was able to build FIE quite a lot. We doubled the numbers of students. I was there eight, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. And it was small, it was contained. Uh, I did that, and I enjoyed doing that, but I got to the point where the board... I was having more difficulties with the board, and um, I think we'd just become over-familiar with each other. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And it got to the point where I really didn't... I asked this to do it... Do I want this for the rest of my life, having battles with the board telling me I should be doing this and me saying, I don't want to do this? And decided, no, I don't want this. So I, had, I started uh, conversations with a con- uh, an organisation about 100 yards down the road, very clandestine meetings with the president over drinks. These went on for months until um, he said, well, do you want to come and join us or not? And I said, well, I didn't know you were offering me a job. And he said, well, I'll invent one for you. We'll find you something to do, you know. Um, so I did, and I've, I've enjoyed it enormously. It's been great. You know, I went to Kappa. Yes, and, 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 and I have here in front of me some of the uh, uh, intellectual um, byproducts of your uh, involvement with Kappa. All these um, publications are woven by memory and war no more and human rights in action and t- tell me tell me a few tell me a few words about what what you're doing here partly what one of the things i, I wanted to do at kappa uh, was really to raise their reputation and not it was bad it was just not known much about and to give it an identity as a 
an organization interested in the broader issues of international education. So we started now seven years ago a series of symposia. I think we called them seminars then, and we changed mm -hmm. the name to symposia, which was pre-NAFSA uh, and maybe other times, and then once or twice pre-forum, a gathering of professionals and faculty to talk about a particular theme that we thought wasn't being thought about properly, or wasn't being thought about enough, we weren't particularly judgmental. And out of that, we decided then that we'd publish annually an occasional paper based around that theme. And that's what these are. We've six now. The sixth is in civil rights, and we're editing at the minute and gathering essays. And I'm very, very pleased to say that we have just uh, reached agreement with the forum mm -hmm. to move the symposium to the first day of the forum conference. Mm. So... That's great development. Well, we think it's another, it's a more natural home for us than NAFSA. No disrespect to NAFSA, but Forum was smaller. I've had a long involvement with Forum. I was on the board for six years. I have a more natural affinity. Yes, and it is a natural development. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me move you away from your life a little bit and, and look at the broader picture of study abroad. What do you think is happening with with this field, uh, are we? Um, is it shrinking? Is it uh, growing? Uh, do you think we are getting different types of students these days? Do we need different types of students? Do we need diversity more students, for example? Uh, how are we going to deal with them? Can you can you give me some thoughts about that? Yeah, on a bad day, I'm quite pessimistic actually, because you know we keep patting ourselves on the back about growth. And in fact, the growth has been... If we're thinking about US study abroad, not in the you know, student mobility, it's pathetic. I mean, this is one of the most powerful, richest countries in the world. And I think it was last year, there were 4.5 million students internationally who were mm -hmm. mobile for study purposes. Mm -hmm. 300,000 of those were from the US, which is a shocking figure. And the growth... Um, Rolf Hoffman, you may have remembered, he was the head of Arrested, so he died this year, sadly, one of the giants, had some statistics that showed that the growth of study abroad exactly paralleled, more or less exactly paralleled, the growth of numbers in US higher education. So I don't think we're winning the argument. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's uh, you know, we will grow, but we're still very, very small. The, if you think about it as a market, which I don't necessarily like to... It's also deeply fragmented. The largest organization in this field does not have 2% of the market. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with what you're saying, except I think that uh, the, the comparison of study abroad numbers from the U.S. to the, world, to the rest of the world with uh, the numbers of uh, the rest of the world coming to the United States, which is what I think you said, is a bit of unfair in the sense that you know, higher education in the United States is certainly very high quality. So yeah. you, you have this huge influx of, of people coming to study in, in the United States on a four-year four basis, not a semester. Right. So in these four million, or how many millions you said, uh, you, we have to count all the, all the students that come from Europe or, or yeah. China or to, study, to study in the U.S. for an BA or as graduate students. Anyway, um, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Right? <laughs> yes, right. 
Um, do you think, uh, you, you know a lot about the uh, UK, you, you, this is your turf in a way, what, what do you think Brexit <laughs> will do to study abroad in the UK? Do you think it will have an effect? I think it might. I mean, I think it's part of the, the same question in a way. You know, if you look at study abroad in general, we haven't won the argument for it. And sometimes we've argued very naively about the value. You know, we keep arguing in terms that are archaic and we keep talking in terms that are not doing us any good. And I could go on and on about this. We raise things, the focus on what we call the cross-cultural studies is really not doing us any good intellectually. It's not helping us win an argument. It's not what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, we take students from nation to nation, which may or may not involve culture to culture. So it's one example of things I think we don't do well with. We keep littering ourselves with concepts like global citizenship, which I think is a nonsensical thing. So we're not winning the argument in study abroad. Now, looking at Brexit as a whole, we're not winning the argument for cosmopolitan values or international values. We lost it in England, and we lost it through our own fault in many ways. This may be a global issue as well, but if you think about what Brexit really was, I think it was a rejection of people like me, urban, cosmopolitan, international people mm. who have been beneficiaries of globalization. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I'm not a member of the political establishment, but the political establishment, right and left, has also ignored people who are victims of globalization. In fact, they vilified them. They call them racist, you know, parochial, and all the rest of it. And I think it was an act of rebellion. I don't think they expected to win, but I think it was an act of rejection of internationalizing forces. Because people like me haven't had their salaries reduced by competition from Polish builders, you know? Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, but, I'm not but supporting others. But others, others. But others have. But others directly have been, you know, victims, as they see it, victims of globalisation. You know, the old industrial base of parts of England like Wales and uh, parts of the north was gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are people who have been ignored. And so I think this was a kickback against the urban elites, if you like. And I think it's connected. So the argument for international values, I don't believe is one. I don't believe it's one anywhere. We still have to keep making it. We have to keep making it without vilifying half of the population. You know, the morning after Brexit, I wrote something on this for EAIE. The morning after, I woke up, I was totally depressed, basically because I'd just lost 50 euros with a friend in France. <laughs> you had a bet. Huh? I had a bet that was 60-40. It was yeah. very prescient, you know, don't take any tips from me. But also because your immediate instinct was, how stupid can they be? They're racist, they're this, they're that and the other. And then you realise it's 52% of the population. Mm -hmm. And that is a position of despair, if you actually believe that. Mm -hmm. So I started to try and think, well, why did this happen? And I think it's connected to not winning the argument for internationalization. It's the, I think this is all part of that same, mm -hmm, same kind story. of phenomenon. And uh, what we have to do is be more heedful of people who are not beneficiaries and not ridicule and not vilify and not and listen a bit more, particularly the political parties, to what they're saying. And what they're saying isn't purely racist. 
there are fringes that are racist. Mm -hmm. But there are also genuine, this is felt experience. Do you, do you think this is going to make the UK more interesting as a place of study? I mean, I know in some ways the, the catastrophes, uh, the, 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 uh, the terrible economic crisis in Greece has made Greece in some ways uh, a laboratory of uh, living history, let's say. Uh, students are drawn to, to the study of this difficulty. Do you think that the same may happen in the, in the UK? Or do you think the uh, sort of uh, barriers to, to, to mobility of students will uh, be put up and that will hinder? Yeah. study abroad in the UK? Well, in the immediate future, I think it would do well. If not, not there may be more interest, but it's also cheaper. Because, you know, the, the pound is now yeah. worth bananas on the... <laughs> it's <laughs> collapsed currencies. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect there will be more interest. Particularly maybe the political scientists. We have to f describe what we do a bit more carefully. Yeah. The future is so hard to tell. You know, I, I, have, I still have a feeling that Brexit won't kind of happen. You know, the Brits have a wonderful genius for making these huge decisions and then doing nothing. Or doing it so slowly that by the time anything happens, the impact of it has been kind of dribbled mm -hmm, down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. May, there are many challenges as well ahead. You know, there are people, legal challenges, the Scots haven't even begun. You know, right now there's a constitutional law challenge as to whether or not Parliament has to approve it. Listen, um, I, I want to take you back for a second uh, to Mike Wolf. I, I thought I'd ask you about a, to, to tell us about some dramatic moments in your career, but then I decided you have a great sense of humor. So I, I thought maybe you could tell us a funny anecdote from your life, a career, from your career, something that really th you think back and you, uh, you, you know, you, you amuse yourself with still. Well, this is either funny or tragic. There are two things. One happened yesterday. Yesterday? You yes. had something tragic happening to you yesterday? Potentially tragic. Potentially tragic. As you know, I was doing a presentation, and it's usually I get very at, nervous. At the forum conference. At the conference. forum conference. Yeah, I get very nervous. So two minutes before this, I decided I'm going into the loo, splash onto the toilet, splash water on me, stop hyperventilating, get back. The nearest one was the, um, the disabled toilet. But, so I go in, lock the door, do this, and then I am locked in. I can't unlock the door. And the time is getting very Of course, slow. you're not disabled. What you, you're, well, I think right that was to it. To go in the disabled... Uh, I, I think it was a judgment. I think God said, I'm going to show him. <laughs> and I just about got in time, got out with some help and fiddling around his to get to the podium to begin my presentation uh -huh. on time, just. So I was in a state of some disarray. The other one that I remember very clearly with a deep shudder is when I was working bringing Japanese teachers and exchanges, I had this idea that we should be talking to Albania. No one's talking to Albania. And my then boss, Guy Hoag, who was the author of the Bologna Declaration, said to me, I suggest you don't do this. Well, I interpret the word suggest, you know, rather liberally, I thought was yeah, a suggest. Suggest doesn't mean <laughs> no. So I'm going to do it anyway. Mean, yeah. Yeah. So, long story short, I, after months of negotiation, I had an agreement and funding to bring three Albanian teachers over to the University of Exeter mm -hmm. for a semester of teacher training. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, except for the fact 
They arrived on Monday and defected on Wednesday. <laughs> and I was in the Daily Telegraph front page on Thursday. It got out that I had been responsible for this debacle. Uh-huh. So my boss got on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I told you not to do this. Said, I said, you didn't? You, you suggested. suggested. <laughs> and he's French. I said, the word suggest in England means it's, it's an idea. You don't want to do what you want. So he, he never really believed. He's never forgiven me. I saw him recently. He would still laugh about it. But that was certainly one of the the more futile, desperately unsuccessful forays into international led that anybody's ever done. Because you don't usually... That was Albania uh, at the time of, of, of Hoja? I mean, it, it was after. Just after. Just after. But it wasn't great. You know, it wasn't a great environment. <laughs> I'm sure it was still... Uh, uh, yeah. In the aftermath of a long, uh, dark age there. It was. Um, listen, uh, before we conclude, I, I want to ask you, you know, we, we, we all think about how people will remember us afterwards. How, how, how would you like to be remembered, uh, Mike? What would you like, uh, if, if there's a history book that includes you somewhere, yeah. where, what would you like them to, to say, what would you like that book to say about you? That's a really good question. I guess, you know, um, I've tried to be a nuisance all my career, really. And that, not for the sake of being a nuisance, but I've tried to question the discourses that we have. So if, they, if I've done anything useful, I hope it's to raise questions, not answers, but to, to try and make us all as a profession, as a group of colleagues, think a bit more before we jump into things to establish at least some kind of coherent theoretical base for what we do. What does it mean to say you're a global citizen? What does it mean to say, study abroad changed my life? I've tried to be a critic of accepted wisdom, I suppose, and if somebody agreed with that, I'd like that. <laughs> okay, so it, it will be then Mike Wolf, the man who made us think. Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it was wonderful talking with you, Mike. And you. Really. It's it would be lovely to have that rather than the man who made us annoyed, which I think is <laughs> what they're going to actually say. <laughs> okay, then. Thank you.